Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone. It is a project of EEI, Edison Electric Institute, the National Trade Association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. My name is Brad Vietor, Executive Director of External Affairs at EEI, and I'm your host. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of uh, being able to have a conversation with Clint Odom, the Senior Vice President of Policy at the National Urban League. And I think it goes without saying there's uh, a lot of conversation about social justice and Clint's organization, the National Urban League, has really been at the core and intersection of, of public policy and social justice uh, really since their fan founding. So I, I'm, I'm really honored to have Clint join us for this discussion. So with that, Clint, I'm going to pivot over to you here and ask if you can tell me a little bit more about the National Urban League and your role there. Absolutely. And thanks for having me. The National Urban League is a 110-year-old civil rights and economic empowerment organization. We were founded 110 years ago principally as a way of helping to welcome and get folks migrating, African-American folks primarily, migrating to the North from the South and getting them jobs and getting them acclimated to their new environment. Over the years, we've expanded our presence uh, beyond New York. We are in 90 affiliate sites throughout the United States in 36 states, about 300 communities. And we like to say that we're the nation's oldest civil rights and direct services organization. So we help people with housing counseling, helping people to buy their first home, helping them to stay in their homes. We help uh, people create small businesses through our entrepreneurship centers about a dozen of them throughout the United States. We work on civic engagement issues like voting and census participation. And here recently, we've been very engaged uh, in the social justice movement that has been really brought to the fore with the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and uh, many other people who have been killed uh, at the hands of police in most instances. I want to pivot here a little bit and talk about how the affiliation between the National Urban League and these local urban leagues work. Can you explain that a little bit better to me and the audience? Sure. I promise not to be overly lawyerly here, but we are a federation, not unlike Boys and Girls Club of America, where we have a national Urban League staff, which is headquartered in New York. We also have a few employees in Washington, D.C. We are an independent 501c3 organization with our own board of trustees and our own governance. We are affiliated through an affiliation agreement with 90 other affiliates throughout the country. Each of those affiliates is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. They have their own boards of trustees and their own governance. And really, the affiliates are where the programs actually take place. So when we talk about doing entrepreneurship centers, well, that will take place in, in a location like the, the Urban League of Philadelphia, for instance, or the Urban League of Louisiana. So the, the affiliates is really where the rubber meets the road, where people are served. And by last count, we serve on an annual basis some 2 million people 
with all sorts of direct services. So we're overhead uh, in, in the headquarters and our affiliates are really where the work happens. You mentioned at the beginning in this sort of crazy time that we're in, not just the COVID crisis, but with frankly, a lot of civil unrest around just awful events that are coming to light now and I think are being paid attention to a little bit differently. Uh, You talked about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, but the thing that's kind of stricken me, I guess, about this is these are just the recent examples. These are just the ones that are grabbing headlines. It's not this is not new, you know, we're, we're having a moment, but this is not new. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you guys are able to do with the Urban League to talk about those two very sort of like sad and critical events, but also give voice to these other tragedies that have been going on around the country and how you kind of get that into the conversation? Well, I'll begin by talking about what we do at the national level. I have the privilege of running uh, the Washington Bureau of the National Urban League, which is uh, the principal interface between the Urban League movement, Congress, the White House, and administrative agencies. So we have been focused like a laser, and certainly since June 1st, on uh, encouraging Congress to enact policing reform at the federal level. The legislation that we fought hard for was the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. And that bill is the first of its kind that aims to comprehensively reform police practices so as to minimize opportunities for uh, citizens or, or police officers, for that matter, to be hurt or worse through routine interaction, law enforcement interaction. The chambers haven't figured out a, a path forward on that. At the affiliate level, some of the more high-profile cases, we've mentioned George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, there are cases all over the country. We just happen to have affiliates in those areas. Uh, I just recently interviewed our affiliate CEOs in Louisville, in the Twin Cities, and down in Atlanta about some of the cases that have been in the news down there. And it's been an effort of working with those affiliates to support them. If there are opportunities to pass laws in state legislatures or in city councils, we help them with model language, but we're really in a support role where where all of these things are happening. You know, one way that my organization, EEI, partners with the Urban League, and I guess one of the reasons that this partnership makes so much sense is because of the local connection you have in the community. You know, we're an organization that our companies, their work cannot be exported overseas. We've got to deliver electricity locally. We live in communities that we serve and you guys do the same. And so we, we've partnered with your organizations, frankly, because we're trying to figure out how to get more folks that are affiliated with the Urban League tied into our business, frankly. I mean, you know, we think it's a good employment partnership for the both of us. So I know that's one way we think about the Urban League. And I know you guys are pretty focused on the workforce in general. Can you maybe talk about how you think of corporate partnerships? Like what makes sense for you at the Urban League? What sort of corporate or trade association partners you're you're looking for and how you like to tie them into your work? I like sustainable partnerships. 
this is a time where corporations may be very well intended and, and perhaps want to reach out and form a partnership, but it may be on a very discrete set of issues. And with the passage of time, the relationship kind of withers because either the issue goes away or the interest in the issue goes away. I also know, certainly for a lot of EEI members, you're serving communities and your business is also in transition. I think we're moving toward you know, smart cities. If you overlay a map of where you find a lot of African-American Latino communities and you overlay it with the National Urban League map, you'll see a high degree of correlation. So your members are serving our customers every day. And a lot of these cities are undergoing transformation. And I'm a big believer that one of the great ways to reinvigorate cities is through creating smart cities, changing the way power is delivered, changing the way customers access power as well. And so, you know, just for example, in our relationship, I think maybe the next phase, in addition to workforce, of course, but is how do we bring those community partners into the planning for what will be the energy delivery of the future? And how do we meet customers where they are and, and where their needs are? There's this new opportunity for us to actually just come together as stakeholders and decide the course that we want together. Uh, you know, it takes different work when we're not drugged down to the principal's office by the government to do it. But I think that if we have partnerships like this at a high level, we can get all the players seated at the table and figure out the future we want together. Yeah, I spent about a decade working for a large publicly traded company that is involved in the delivery of broadband services. And I think there is something to be said about the ability of companies and the community to work out what their future is going to look like. Yep, absolutely. No, I appreciate that and that perspective. All right. So to maybe maybe pivot back to social justice a little bit, I spend a lot of time with corporations. I spend a lot of time with policymakers. You know, we certainly hear a lot more corporations stepping up to the plate and talking about the import of justice and uh, social justice and police reform, certainly in this moment. When you're advising corporations that are trying to figure out how to engage in sort of what the right things to do are as they consider that engagement. You know, any, any sort of recommendations that you can share for our listeners sure, as they're sure. trying to figure out their own plans? We've been very busy talking with well, anyone who will listen to us, frankly, but that often turns out to be uh, companies or, or trade associations. And at least the way I've discussed it is, are we in a moment or are we in a movement? To my mind, I think we're in a movement. The protests that you see out on the streets are very multicultural. In some parts of the country, it's only white people. You know, when you have areas of the country that are not incredibly diverse, they are still out there protesting for black lives and the protection of black lives. So we ask people to consider the possibility that we are in a movement and that you want to be a part of this. You don't want to be on the wrong side of a movement. You want to be with it as much as you can. And being able to pivot from a colorblind, 
anti-discrimination orientation in your outlook to one that is essentially anti-racist. That's really what the moment calls for. It calls for the express recognition of a problem. If you can cross that threshold issue that there is a problem, then it allows you to take the veils off, the blinders off, and start to actually work on it. This problem can only be fixed the way any social problem in this country has been fixed, and it's by a wide spectrum of people and supporters. The Voting Rights Act happened because people saw things on television that they didn't like. The Civil Rights Act passed because people understood fundamentally the exclusion of people from places of public accommodation and other benefits solely on the basis of the color of their skin was fundamentally unfair. And in this moment, where things like lack of access to capital, educational outcomes, health disparities that COVID has really just blown wide open, we know these things aren't going to be fixed on the efforts of the people who are suffering these problems alone. It's going to have to happen with the help of allies. And I've been more encouraged now than any time in recent history that there's a shift in public sentiment on this point. As you think about an election that's forthcoming and the possibility polls suggesting that Vice President Biden might be in position to win here in November, what sort of policy changes do you foresee in a in a sort of future Biden administration that might align with some of the things you're talking about here? Well, I appreciate the question. I also have a relationship that I should probably disclose. Senator Kamala Harris was my boss for a little over two years in, in my immediate position before coming to the National Urban League. I was her first legislative director. We are a nonpartisan organization, so I will resist the urge to predict any outcomes or even foretell what I think a Biden-Harris administration would do. I'm very excited to see the senator's addition to the ticket is a powerful symbol, and I think it's also a powerful statement of policy as well. Um, it's no secret that the administration's handling of the COVID pandemic has not been good for people of color in this country who are suffering health disparities and, and mortality rates at two to three times the rates of white people. We've had, it seemingly, an unnecessary argument in this country over whether we should address the pandemic or address the economy. This is the false choice that I alluded to earlier in the conversation. We should do both, but what the Federal Reserve is telling us, our central bankers and economists are telling us, is we will not get a recovery until this virus is brought to heel. And the only way that's going to happen is, of course, the development of therapeutics and vaccines. As of July of this year, there were 3 million African Americans who were unemployed, who were employed in the year in that period before. There were 450,000 small black businesses that have been lost as a result of this pandemic. And so I would expect that a new administration would take a real tailored approach to addressing those harms as opposed to one that says, well, if the economy recovers, 
everybody will be fine. That's not going to cut it. Yep. Well, look, Clint, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with our audience. It's a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your perspective and the time. No, I appreciate it. And EEI's leadership here. I was very pleased in June to see a statement of your leadership about this social justice movement and this moment that we find ourselves. And I just want to encourage your members to stick with it. This will not be a warp speed type solution, but approaching it with the right attitude and patience, I think as a country, we'll get there. And I look forward to that day. that you found this to be an informative 15 minutes and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights about the intersection of energy policy and COVID-19. To learn more about the electric industry's response to COVID-19, visit www.eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current and We Stand for Energy.